Let us pray to ask for the Lord's blessing for today's sermon. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we humbly come before you, knowing that if we try to do work on our own, it comes to nothing. Lord, may the words of my mouth glorify you and speak your truth. Please open up our ears that we may hear and understand and live the truths according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you've been following along, if you've been coming to church here uh, during this season, you will recognize that there is a repetitive theme going on in the Gospel of Luke. And it seems like this repetitive theme is every week. You might even say, Pastor... You've got it easy for you right now because it's just like the same concepts again and again and again. But what does this tell us? Why is it that Jesus' call to repentance and repentance from a particular type of sin, why did he do that so frequently to the people of Israel? In fact, I mentioned this in Sunday school this morning, but... If you look at it, this narrative of you were enslaved, I brought you out of Egypt, you didn't want to listen to me, so what I had to do is is put you and, and discipline you for 40 years and then bring you into the promised land, and you received all these blessings, and then you didn't you, you decided it was of yourself and you forgot about me and you didn't serve me anymore come back and repent and how that narrative if you look in the old testament it shows up not once not twice but many 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 times this is the ongoing narrative and it is in fact the narrative that jesus is driving home to the people of israel now for those of you that were here last may you may have remembered a sermon of course I once met a pastor who told me this, gave me this illustration. You know, one of the things you're striving for is the shelf life of your sermon. Okay? And I said, the shelf life? What are you talking about? It's You preach a sermon and people, how long do people keep thinking about it? Right? Do they think about it just that afternoon? Do they think about it on Monday morning? Or do they remember it? Well, I think I must be a poor student because I can only think of three sermons my entire life that I've carried with me for many years. I don't know what that says about those who have preached to me, but this uh, back in, in May, May the 9th, as a matter of fact, I preached a sermon called The Empty Bucket. Okay, and I told a little, gave an illustration at the beginning. And part of it was based out of Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. And basically it is uh, speaking, in fact, to um, that we carry the name of God as Christians. And it was based out of don't take the Lord's name in vain. And that we carry the name of God as Christians. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. It says, you shall not take... The name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And we've we've come to believe that being all kinds of things, like we just casually say God's name, 
We kind of use it as a curse of some sort, and that's true. Those are, uh, in fact, uh, small ways in which we take the Lord's name in vain, but that is not the point. The point is not that you smashed your hand and you called on God's name in some kind of negative way. That is a way to sin, but that's not the real point. The deep point is we carry the name of God. The people of Israel carried the name of God, and they were to carry it to the world. And yet they were carrying, instead of God's name upon them, their own pride, their own desires, their own agendas. And therefore, even though they were the people of God, the church of the day, they in fact were carrying it in an empty fashion. Don't carry or bear the name of our God empty. Jim Jordan would say it this way, in the third word, that is commandment, God is saying that his people carry him, and more precisely, his name wherever they go. People are to discern who God is as they observe us, and if we live empty and false lives, then the revelation of God is distorted and compromised and even falsified. The Hebrew word translated in vain or emptily carries two related connotations. The first is of powerlessness or vanity. The man who carries God's name emptily is a Christian who does nothing that would mark him as a Christian. The second connotation of this word is falsity. The man who carries God's name falsely goes a step farther, so to speak. Like the Pharisees, he carries God's name with him, but his life and words cause men to hate God. This way of living does not bring the streams of living water to the people around us. God is powerful in a humble, self-sacrificing way. Those who carry God's name must live in the same way, by being servants of all, not lording over anyone, living sacrificially. We show forth the hidden but infinite power of God. Have we placed barriers to the gospel in our families, our brothers and sisters, or even to the lost? Let us not carry the name of God in an empty fashion, but as the powerful, life-changing, beautiful, hope-providing, saving grace His name is. Now, frankly, I could just leave it at that and say, okay, there's the sermon for the day. But that was a summary of the sermon that I gave back last May. And I really think that that is, in fact, a good and proper lead-in to what's going on here with the people of Israel. Um, you know, our title of today's sermon is Desiring God's Judgment for Others. Remember, again, I'm going to say this, all the chapters leading up to here, are about a call to repentance. First with John the Baptist, right, calling out. Remember, this is real important. The repentance there it, it, with John the Baptist, right before that narrative starts, what happens in, in, in Luke? It names the political leaders, and it names the religious leaders, and then there's a call to repentance. By the way, it's interesting to note who doesn't repent. Not the political leaders, not the religious leaders. 
And as we go through the whole narrative, again, if you think week after week, and we've been going through Luke, Jesus is constantly calling them to repentance and stop thinking that they're so special and better than everyone else. Come to repentance. Now, again, in this narrative, last week we finished up Luke chapter 13. This week we're going to be, our, our passage, our lectionary reading is Luke chapter 15, but I want us to cover Luke 14 just a little so that we stay in context. Filling in the blanks from Luke 14. We see that at the beginning of 14 that, he is, that Jesus is sitting in the midst of a ruler of the Pharisees. In verse 1 it says, Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, and they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Look at their response. But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox, has fallen into a pit and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. There's a couple of things I want to point out. First of all, they couldn't answer him. That actually, if you look at the Greek there, it's not even so much that they could not answer him like they had no ability to. But it's really that they could not exert or they couldn't wield their power or to have the strength to overcome. The strength to overcome what? Their prejudice. They came in there, they were sitting there, and they were watching him so that they could find some fault in him. They didn't care if he was speaking God's word. They were merely looking for fault. And there's an ongoing distinction that, that Jesus is making all through the Gospels and certainly all through Luke about, I know you're the people of God, you're supposed to be the clean ones, and you're supposed to be interceding for God and being the ambassadors for God to all the world, and yet you're just full of pride and you circle your wagons and you're all happy to be the people of God and you want to cut off all those unclean pagans and unbelievers. It's fascinating, when Jesus rebukes them, he says, Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen to a pit would not immediately pull him out of the Sabbath, on the Sabbath day? You know, it's very interesting. Why did he say, and remember, God didn't waste a single word. Why did he say donkey and ox? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, in verse 10, that whole section is about forbidden mixtures. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, what's going on there? Well, an ox was a clean animal. As a matter of fact, an ox was something that you would kill specifically in the Feast of the Tabernacles, 70 of them, for you were interceding for the 70 nations, for all the pagan nations. You were interceding for them during that Feast of Tabernacles. And here, here's a clean animal, right? Wouldn't you pull that clean animal out if you fell into a, a ditch? Well, a donkey, a donkey was not a clean animal. They couldn't eat a donkey. They could eat an ox, but they couldn't eat a donkey. It, it was considered unclean. Jesus is making an observation here that, yes, you should help your Christians, your fellow believers in God on the Sabbath day. And in fact, you should help the pagan as well, the unclean as well. 
do not assume superiority. You know, you see in that next passage that there's, Jesus gives a, tells a story about being invited to a wedding feast. Don't sit down. This is back in Luke 14. You know, do not sit down in the best place, lest one of more honorable than you be invited by him. And then you'll be embarrassed because the person will move you from the place of honor to somewhere else. The people of Israel felt superior to everyone else. They failed to recognize that they too were sinners and required the grace and forgiveness of God. No, that's for those terrible, wicked God-haters out there. We don't need that because we're the people of God. Then he also, Jesus gives a warning of, be careful, in Luke 14, whom you, you bring to the feast. Don't, don't invite people just because you can be paid back. It's interesting. In verse 13, he says this, but when you give a feast, and of course the context is a wedding feast here, invite the poor, that's the beggarly, the maimed, the disabled, the lame, that's the limper, crippled, the blind, physically, or even sometimes this word means mentally blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid in the resurrection of the just. Remember this, in this section here of all the people that are listed out, all but the poor were considered ceremonially unclean. And the poor, yes, they were even the ones who were considered cursed. Why are you poor? Because there's a curse on you. Finally, there is Jesus speaking of the Great Supper in Luke 14. And who is to be there? Remember, the king sends out his messengers to all those that should have been there, right? All the ones that should be there at the feast, at this wedding feast. And what, what is it? They don't want to come. Look what happens. They make other priorities, and God brings about judgment. Now notice this in verse 21, the comparative. Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you have commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. So he goes out and gets all those you wouldn't expect. All those who were considered ceremonially unclean and cursed. But there's also judgment, not, as God's grace, not only is there God's grace, but there is judgment. Because he says in verse 24, For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. When we start to think that we're special, that we are superior to everyone else, we have forgotten the base thing that every one of us in this room are sinners saved by grace. God, by His mercy, by His divine providence, has opened up your eyes that you may see and believe and make distinctions and understand what's happening. And others, God hasn't done that for them yet. Be humble. Understand He's calling you to speak the truth in humility. And of course, Chapter 14 ends with a clear call for repentance and the coming of judgment. We see this in, at the very end of chapter 14 and verse 34. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? 
Now, there's a lot of times I think we look at it and we're thinking just in terms of seasoning, like it's making it taste better. You know, if you've ever eaten, accidentally bought that can of vegetables from the store and it had the no salt added, and you go, yikes. <laughs> it isn't just that. We need to remember that salt, for many, 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 many generations, even today, it sterilizes things, right? It kills infection. It's not that the salt actively kills viruses or bacteria, but the science of it shows that it alters the available water and pressure of the viral and bacterial cells within the mucus of the respiratory system. For example, that's why in some cases they tell people to go live by the sea. The salty air draws the water out of the viral and bacteria cell, causing the virus and bacteria to die. You see, they were called to be the salt to the world. Some of it just by merely being around others, and in other cases they were to get right in there and be an effective agent of truth and mercy. And what happens, though, when it becomes useless and doesn't do these things? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. And what does Jesus say right there? He who has ears, let him hear. Now, I'm just going to say this. If you're a long time in the reform movement or even in the CREC, we can think we got it all together. We worship in this way and we do it rightly. But if we do it without the mercy and the calling and the understanding that we're to go out there and minister to the people in this room, disciple the people in this room, and disciple the people out there in the world and preach the gospel, sometimes by merely being around them and sometimes very directly because God opens that door, then we are just like the people of Israel who are vainly, emptily carrying God's name. Jesus continues to press the hearers to flee from their prideful separatist or circle the wagons mentality to keep out those who are not in their club of the special people of God. We need to understand that this is not where we are to be. And of course we see in Luke chapter 15 as we heard in our reading today, and we'll, we'll go through this here this morning, that they start by indignantly complaining. The people of God are complaining that Jesus are with those who are not the holy and righteous and look good on the outside. It says this in verse 1 of chapter 15, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, you think about this for just a second here, right? Jesus is coming, and who is drawing near to him? Those that recognize that they are sinners. Those who are not drawing near to him are those who think they are standing on their own merit and good deeds. And they complain and say, look at this guy. Can you believe this? He's supposed to be a teacher. He's supposed to be... The Messiah, that's what he claims, the Savior of the world. And look at him. He doesn't hang out with us who are, have everything together on the outside and are perfect and right. 
No, he, hang, he hangs out with sinners. And Jesus spoke to him in verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he has come home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. My first question in that is, can you imagine who doesn't need repentance? The whole of God's word, even up to that time, again thinking back to Luke 3 and John the Baptist, is a call to repentance. Both to the political leaders, the church leaders, and every person in that nation. Even the God-fearers who weren't born of the nation of Israel. There's a call to repentance. I think Jesus right there is using a little satire, a little poke, a little jab, a little sarcasm to say, hey, look, we get somebody that was wicked, has come to Jesus and wants to be forgiven and wants to be reconciled to God. There's more rejoicing than that, for that, than it is for the 99 who, I would say, think they don't need repentance. We see in the next passage the joy in the presence of angels the parable of the lost coin tells us this and again this is jesus or what woman having 10 silver coins if she loses one does not light a lamp sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it and when she has found it she calls her friends and neighbors together saying rejoice with me for i have found the peace which i lost Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I think sometimes we, we get caught up, we parse these out, and we don't actually see that second layer that's right there, obviously, in front of us. People of God, who is in the presence of angels? God the Father. Jesus is driving home that God the Father is full of joy when just one sinner repents. Jesus is calling all of Israel to imagine what that joy would be like if all came to repentance. Now, we're going to come up to this passage that has typically been named the prodigal son. I think it's mistitled. It is truly the story of the two lost sons. Jesus says this in verse 11 of chapter 15. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a portion of the goods that falls to me. So he divided, listen, to them his livelihood. He didn't just give the stuff to the son that went and squandered it. He gave it to both of them. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now, I would ordinarily say this. If you had never heard the story of the prodigal son and heard all those sermons on it, would you have any idea what prodigal living is? I would even say right now that's probably kind of murky. That word, astotis, in Greek, 
means not under the restraints of the law, shameless in wickedness. He had no shame. He was just going to go do whatever. He was acting as if his father, and in this case, God, did not exist. It says this in verse 14, But when he, that is this younger son, had spent, that is squandered in waste, just consumed it all up. Once he had done all that, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent them to the fields to feed swine. Now, I think there's something very interesting here that we often overlook, and that is, it says, then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. So he's in a place that doesn't believe in God, that, you know, with all his friends and partying with him and having a good time. And it says that he joined himself to a citizen of that country. You know, that word joined there, it's the word cleave. He went and what he did is when the trouble happened, he didn't go back to the father. No, he somewhat married himself to that thinking. He went deeper in. To his sin. He says, I'm, I'm not going to go home to God. I'm going to, in, in turn, I'm going to marry this idea, this pagan living, this, these, these concepts. That's what I'm going to do. What does Satan do? He's an angel of light. He's deceitful. He says, look how beautiful and good all this stuff is, this fun. Look at it. And then when trouble, when God starts bringing, what, what, that's severe famine. We know that that is a curse from God. That's discipline from God to bring about repentance. That's not what he did. He turned from that call to repent. And instead he went and joined up in a deeper way. And what, what is the promise? What is the promise of the adulterous woman? It leads to death. It looks good. It looks like shiny. It's all pretty. But then what? And in fact, he gets nothing. Send him to the fields to, to, to feed the swine. And it's funny because he didn't immediately come to his senses. Remember that the swine, those are an animal that are unclean and would cause a person to be cut off from fellowship with God. He went farther in. And it says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the unclean pig ate. And no one gave him anything. You know, in Micah chapter 6, verse 14, it says this, You shall eat, but not be satisfied. You shall hunger, and it'll be in your midst. Praise be to God, though. That's not where the story ends. We see repentance and restoration. But when he came to himself, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, and this is the key. It isn't just that, oh, I know what's good over there. We were talking about this this morning about how you can have the truth on something and you can be dealing with a person in crisis and you can have the right words for them to hear, but they don't want to do it. So I've known many a person who was struggling in their faith and they're like, well, I'm just going to stay where I am. I'm I'm not going to go do the things that God tells me to do. But he doesn't stay in that state. 
he comes to a true place of repentance. Father, this is what he's going to say to God. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Remember this, people of God, anytime someone sins, whether it's yourself or someone else, the first victim in that sin is always God. It's always God. If someone has sinned against you or offended you or even committed a criminal crime against you, remember, you're not the first victim. God is the first victim. Because what does he say? I've sinned against my Father and heaven. Repent. By the way, our first calling in that situation, if someone has offended us, sinned against us, or even criminally done something to us, is to do all that we can to bring them to reconciliation to the Almighty, and then they can be reconciled to you. He gets so down on this, recognizing that he needs to be humble and repent. Verse 19 of chapter 15 of Luke says, And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That is to say, make me like one of the angels. I'm not going to go into the promised land. I can just be an angel. Micah chapter 7, this, this is after the Micah chapter 6 part, just kind of tying that together, right? It says this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You cast out all our sins into the depths of the sea. Look how merciful he is. He wants to restore us. Back to Luke 15, verse 20. And he, that is the younger son, arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and what? Had compassion. But he didn't just have a compassion like, oh. No, that compassion caused him to do what? To run to him. And he didn't just run to him, but he fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, remember this. What was the kissing in those days when a person, a man, would come up to another man and kiss him? It isn't like the, the terrible perversions we see today. This is kissing on the cheek. It was a passing of the peace. I'm at peace with you. That's what it meant. If you came up to, a stranger came up to you, another man came up to you, and you didn't like him or you didn't trust him, you didn't go up and give him that kiss on the cheek. Nope, you kept your distance. But if you were at peace with him, you would go and kiss them on the cheek. The father said, you're coming, you're returning, you're repentant. I'm going to give you the kiss of peace. And the son said to him, you see, the son didn't just receive it. He kept on his mission to repent and said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Complete humility. Sometimes as Christians, we keep trying to take our tattered rags of righteousness and bring them to God. I remember, people of God, there's not one thing that we do that is righteous except for that which comes through the mercy of the work of Jesus Christ. What was the father's response, though? But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands and sandals on his feet. 
Confession to God brings restoration through the work of Christ. The ring is a restoration of sonship and authority. He doesn't just forgive him and, yes, put him in the place of that servant angel who's got no inheritance and no blessing. No. What does he do? He gives him a ring that shows that he is fully the son. The sandals speak to not being a servant. Servants went barefoot. He cared about his feet. Even the lowest part of him, the part that was going to touch the ground, you're still my son. I'm going to cover your feet. And you know what? That best robe, that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are clothed in it. When you confess your sins, when you confess your sins, the righteousness of Jesus is around you. It covers you. And the father says, and bring the fatted calf here and we'll kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and alive again. He was lost and found and they began to be merry. And so many people in this, in this story focus on that son who comes back. And that's important because we need to know. Jesus starts with the story of mercy, mercy. Come to repentance and you will be restored. You will be brought into the final part of the kingdom and you will be part of all that God the Father is doing. What joy we have in His forgiveness and mercy no matter how bad we've been. But that is not the real point or the final point because there's another son the other lost son who was refusing the father's fellowship look at verse 25 now his older son was in the field now here's the question he's in the field but was he doing what he should be doing was he taking dominion and being fruitful was he calling others to repent repentance and teaching them to observe all that God had commanded he was in the field he was out there. Remember Jesus earlier, he's calling, Lord, send what? Workers to the harvest. He's out in the field, so he's where he's supposed to be, but is he doing what he's supposed to be doing? And it says this, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Now this is interesting. He doesn't rush in. He doesn't go to his father. He goes to one of the servants. He's already, you can tell, that he has this idea of, well, you know, I'm not going to go to my dad. I'm just going to ask one of these guys. Now, there's already some type of tension between him and his father because he just asked one of the servants. If he loved his father, he'd be, wow, there's a party. Why is dad doing this? Let me go in and see what God, what my father is doing. And so the servant said to him, your brother has come home and because he, that is the father, has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Now look at verse 28 because this is very important. If you don't see this, you're missing the whole point. But he was angry and what? Would not go in. That, that, that tension with his father, that enmity between him and the father, that, that, part, that, that was played itself out. He wouldn't even go in. 
He didn't even have the courage to go in and look at his father and say, I don't get this. Help me understand. He won't even go in. Look at the father's mercy. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. God the Father is so full of mercy, even though the Son says, I don't want any part, He's going to go out and plead with Him. That, to me, is an amazing work of mercy and grace. And what does he do? The father comes out. He pleaded with him. You could hear him say, come in, son. Come in and rejoice with us. Be a part. And so the son answers this way. He says to his father, lo, these many years. And he, lo, that's like, look at me, lo. These many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. Now, can we be for real? I mean, real. Who here was obedient to their parents their entire life. I'm going to take one step back because if someone raises their hand, God's going to strike you down. I mean, that's just the reality of it. He goes low. He's proclaiming all these years. I've never, I've never transgressed your commandment. It was all about himself. He was full of pride. Remember, the Father had already divided and given him blessing. Had already divided it and given it to him. And then he goes, despite the fact that the Father had already given him all these things, he says this, And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. He got his half. He got his inheritance. He's got it all. Right? Because the other part squandered away. The unbelievers, those, those, those pagans, those God-haters, they've squandered all of God's goodness away. But you got the inheritance. You got into the promised land. You got all these things. You have my prophets among you all this time. And he's like, you didn't give me anything. He's forgotten what? We were talking about in the beginning, this narrative, repetitive. You were enslaved, and I brought you out of Egypt, and I cared for you, and I nurtured you. And even when you were, didn't care for me, and you said, you're, you're going to let us die out here, and I brought discipline, and then I, I kept teaching you and teaching you and bringing you along, and yet I even fed you through the whole wilderness journey when you were bad. I fed you. I gave you water to drink. I actually, my son, sent my son down and let Moses strike that son and provide you living water to sustain you. And you act like I've given you nothing. And the sun goes on. He is so mad at God. For all the goodness and mercies of God. He says, but as soon as this son of yours came. Who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. You killed the fatted calf for him. People of God, guard your hearts. The only reason you believe, the only reason that you have any good is because of the work of Christ in you. Christ's righteousness, not your own. Don't be prideful. 
Don't be like this. And remember, this is Jesus calling again and again and again. There's this warning. And the prophets are warning against this and bringing this up again and again and again. Because we are always thinking when success comes, when good things happen, it's because of our own works. Remember last week we talked about that? Right? You'll think when you're full, when you've got it all together, you'll think it's because you did it. Not because... My grace and mercy and kindness gave it to you. He is so concerned with his own faithfulness and his position as a son. He says, look at all I have done. Even more than that, I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. This tells us that his pride in all his religious insights and actions had brought a real blinding delusion. If he had been faithful in the field, he would have seen his sin and his need for mercy. All the lessons, psalm song, feasts, were reminding him of his sin and God's willingness to forgive. And God the Father still is merciful, soft, when he says in verse 31 of Luke 15, And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost, and now is found. The father scolds him, saying that he has indeed been given all that God has provided, and it was his. But rejoicing and feasting is right when the lost who are wicked have come to repentance and been restored. He cared more for his prideful position than for doing his call. Let us consider our calling not as prideful in what God in His providential mercy has revealed to us, but let us consider our epistle reading from today, from 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it says this, All is from God, who has reconciled Himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us to Him so that we would have a ministry of reconciliation. And where did it come from? It all came from God. And God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, you and I, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal through us. It came from God. It's by his mercy. It's by the work of Christ. And he is making... That appeal through us. Paul says this, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we give you thanks that you care for us, that you are merciful, that you forgive us. Let us always humbly recognize your goodness, your mercy, and your grace that we may share that same mercy and grace and disciple each other and the world. In Jesus' name, amen.